HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Are you a business owner? This spring, amplify your business and support HRN's mission by becoming a business member. HRN is dedicated to spotlighting small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. With a $500 business membership, HRN can shine a light on your work and you can help sustain our mission to transform the way people think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You will also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. All right, I want to welcome everyone to Raw Wine Spring 2022. Um, welcome to the Speaker's Corner. Um, today we're going to be discussing creating complexity without alcohol, which is our title, and it's pretty interesting. I do a podcast on wine, and I jumped on this to get out of my comfort zone to talk about tea and fermented tea. I'm tea-obsessed on the side, but... Nowhere near wine, but um, when I started researching this, it's an incredibly uh, interesting um, subject, and the beverages are unbelievable. Um, Food and Wine magazine described these beverages as highly sippable offerings that are somewhere between a dry Basque cider and a juicy skin skin contact wine, but with just the merest trace of residual alcohol pretty good description. Um, And I think the mere trace of residual alcohol, you know, plays into what we're doing here. Um, So obviously this makes a great non or very low alcohol um, alternative. So our guests today are Sancho Rodriguez. He's the artisan winemaker from Ama Brewery in the Basque region of Spain. And Graham Pertle, he's the co-founder from United Ferments, Unified, I'm sorry. Okay, I have Unified. <laughs> it's just I, I kind of walk around. No, I have United. I screwed up. And I knew that. Because when I went to Google at the first time, I go, this company doesn't exist. And then I realized it was Unified, but it was too late. I had committed it to memory. Um, so Graham is right here in Brooklyn, um, which is, you know, nice and interesting. Um, so we're going to be discussing fermented beverages tea, low to no alcohol, and certainly you'll see the artisan craftsmanship that goes into this. Um, I'm sure among you, we have some fans here. I'm sure there may be one of you that maybe have never tasted this stuff, and there may be an expert or two in here, so that's fine. So let us guide you through this interesting uh, travel through fermented tea beverages. So to set things up and to give you a little context, I want each of you to take a few minutes to give us a little background on who you are. Um, You guys didn't start in the fermented tea business, so you got here. I'm curious, you know, where you were, how you got here. Talk about what you're doing today. Talk a little about the company. 
And then we'll get into, you know, the teas specifically and all that. So Sancho, we could start with you. Okay, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Sancho Rodriguez. Um, I'm from Irún, the Basque country, Spanish Basque country. Um, of course, I didn't start fermenting teas, uh, but um, I was really lucky to, um, to have grown up in, um, in a farm, in a, um, in a farm in La Rioja. My parents found the lost place in 67, lost in the mountains to, uh, to spend time. And uh, they were from Irún. They had nothing to do with wine, but they started to make wine. And as they were, I always say that joke, I will use it here today as I'm in Brooklyn. They were not hippies. They were not from Northern California, but uh, they moved back to the land and uh, they never used, they started by accident to make wine. They were surrounded by a very interesting old vineyards and um, they never used uh, herbicides or pesticides because it was the, the our house and the kids were playing there. So as rare birds, they would did something that was not very usual from the 60s. Was really lucky to, uh, to grow up there. I grew up between La Rioja and the Basque country um, in the coast. And basically that's why I dubbed myself the, the vigneron in the project. I'm a brewery starts five years ago officially. My partners are chefs. They're uh, chefs that were playing around a lot with fermentation um, as a means to uh, tweak or, f or, or, fi or find more flavor out of, uh, out of food with a great respect for, um, um, for, um, for the original ingredients. Um, Daniela Saramon Pericer, Ramon still is head of research of uh, creativity at Mugaritz, a cutting edge, crazy restaurant, I would say, in, uh, in the Basque country. Danny worked 20 years in Mugaritz and from the beginning and was 15 years uh, head of uh, creativity. And um, they found that um, this fermentation, the kombucha fermentation, that they started to eat it. Uh, then they realized that it was uh, a means of um, doing a drink, complex drink, that then by accident, um, some bottles aged for a long time and they didn't turn sour and suddenly, ping, it was the light bulb moment. Okay, uh, we have amazing tea that then we talk about that later because that's my part as a farmer. And then we have this formula to, uh, to do something aged, complex, and by accident has low alcohol. Right. All right, so like you said, we will get into the teas. Graham, um, like Sancho said, you didn't start in the fermented tea business. No, I did not start in the fermented tea business. Um, I have little to no background in any type of food other than serving it and doing some bartending that eventually led to some bar it. programming. Yeah, actually I've never eaten food before. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I, I'm chlorophylled. Um, um, but I came into my path to this is, uh, I guess as bizarre as anybody's, but I had done, um, been kind of wandering around, um, you know, in various bar professional contexts. I done some cocktail programming at some places. I had, um, you know, always had a, I came from a, a home where food was important and flavor and especially kind of like, you know, global flavor. I feel like I just happened to grow up in a, a in a space. I'm from the South originally and my mother particularly is kind of part of a, a kind of coastal South that absorbs where? a lot of culture, like Southern Alabama, but her, okay. her people are kind of more um, kind of Cajun, at least half of them are a little bit more Cajun, which is, you know, Probably everybody here knows that it's a it's a you know a culinary melting pot to say the least. And there's just a lot of cultures that travel. Um, a lot more Asian cultures travel along the the Gulf Coast um, that I think people have historically realized. But so I just I feel like I just kind of grew up in, in a little bit of for that time and place probably a little bit more of like a globe trotting flavor kind of place. So that's just been in me um, that comes back out. Um, Nowadays, now that I have more, um, I don't know, lateral capability in the food world from being part of a beverage. Uh, so take me to how you get to Unified. Sure. So I was in New York. I had been um, managing a bar um, in Gowanus after I moved up to New York. 
And I, I had just moved to New York when I, I landed that gig. And so at the time I was dead broke from having just recently moved to New York. <laughs> and I, there was a, a position open for like a counter position at like a tea house in the Lower East Side. That was uh, it's 29B. They do very beautiful stuff there. They're great sourcing. Um, that was my first major experience with tea um, and kind of outside of just casual tea that's exposed to like North Americans in terms of cut, tear, curl, um, you know, essentially powdered tea that is of no place. It's the view from nowhere tea wise. Um, and it didn't click for me at first. And I feel like I was brought on basically to start programming a cocktail program there, which I eventually would which because we had a tavern license at the time, I had no spirits to pull from. So I was actually using a lot of brines because we did a lot of pickling in-house, a lot of um, different kinds of sweetness. I didn't want to make syrups out of every tea because I was just disingenuous to trying to express those, uh, the tea from that angle. And so it was quietly beginning to assemble the mathematics to try to recontextualize tea in an effervescent, cold, um, evening beverage context inside of stemware that I could never have guessed would be something that I would elaborate on so deeply um, or come to find so much joy in. But that is the origin of the, um, I, I, I guess I'm literally fermentation director. Um, that is the origin of the, the praxis that we work from is feeling now that the style of fermentation that's called kombucha that I almost have a mildly allergic reaction to because of the associations with the, the type of products that people have come to know as kombucha. I want to talk about that. Exactly. I won't get too into it right now, but right? That's, that's where that we have We have a couple of teas in front of us, sure. but I have problems referring to all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I want to get the elephant in the room out of the way. Do, and I asked you this earlier. Do we refer to these as beverages, kombucha, fermented beverages? Because what people think of kombucha, it's a process that you guys use here, but I wouldn't say you call this kombucha. What do we, how do we refer to these beverages, Sancho? I mean, that was like definitely like a um, big challenge. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so how do the we, dumbest question. Go ahead. How do we call this? But now that time has gone by, I don't have so much problem like saying that this starts as a kombucha. Okay. Um, now we say it's a fine aged kombucha in, in in our case because that was what that's what it is. We age it and we bring it out with six. We're gonna taste some that are like two years old. But we went really crazy all the way to find the penati word, or as I tell all my wine friends, colleagues, when I open them a bottle, they never taste. I say, hey, this is an ancestral, but this is an ancestral, and it's a. Uh, uh, not fermented grapes, but it's fermented tea leaves. Right. So, you know, Graham, it's evolved that way. How do you say different? There's a little difference in... Circuitously, know, usually. <laughs> I like I like to say a non-alcoholic fermented beverage. Um, but I believe that the form of kombucha is probably catching up a little bit these days. Right. Maybe in like three years. I think it might be able to be worn a little more appropriately um, by our kind of offerings and like what we're trying to do. I do think that still has a, so a ring to it. I wouldn't call it the stigma, but the association of what people think kombucha is, and you'll answer this in a second, which to a lot of people is a health aid or a probiotic. That's not part of what you're doing or what you're thinking, right? I mean, it may be there. But is that is that an issue with you? People, you know, look at this as, oh, that's the kombucha in the bodega. We usually try to, um, if we have the opportunity, we try to spring it on people that it's a kombucha, typically. Okay. We like to people to have more of a kind of um, naked experience of what we're doing before we try to kind of attempt to clothe it with, you know, uh, designation. And sometimes we, people, I mean, even at this festival, it's like people are like, oh, this isn't wine. You know, a few things right. in. So, <laughs> Well, we'll yeah. talk about the similarities, too. And Sancho, you said you call them pet natis also, right? Yeah, we call it that. But right. it's true that at the beginning, when we were starting to sell this, um, we didn't want to say kombucha because basically it's something acidic, acetic, and uh, sold in health stores. 
or and became like no really a mainstream category of this kind of like healthy uh, soft drink. And but at the end, I mean, wine is wine. I mean, we're not going to say right. what is natural, and that's another topic. But white wine is white wine, but it can be all all for garbage uh, right. industrial white wine to right. amazing like artisanal white wine. But at the end, it's what it is. But yeah, we kind of like. So we have around. we have two beverages in front of us. Um, just so I'm right. Our right, your left, on their left, what did we pour? We poured the... The um, lighter one on the cot. The lighter one is uh, Wenshin Baoshang. This is, all of our products are named after the tea that is their namesake. Wenshin Baoshang is a um, lightly oxidized Wulong from Taiwan, from a fourth generation tea growing family in the Nantau region. Um, lightly oxidized... Very delicate roasting, just a kind of kiss of some pan roasting. The one on the other one that has the darker complexion, I'm not exactly sure. I can't tell exactly from here. But the one that has a bit more of a roasted um, nose to it is Chidan. Chidan is a cultivar of Wulong that is produced in Wuyishan, the Wuyi mountain region in um, eastern China. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Biodiversity Site. Um, and an ancestral kind of place of this open leaf um, high oxidation, um, very low, deep roasted oolong. Um, and is also a representative cliff tea because it grows in a region where the teas, the, the tea bushes will actually grow on the side of the cliffs, which uh, yields a bit more of the uh, mineral component of the soil into the tea leaf. All right, so now that you have a couple of teas in front of you and you tasted them, is there anyone in here who's tasted these for the first time? I mean, is this your first time? Okay. Um, hopefully your reaction was like mine. So let's, let's talk about what it takes to make these teas. Um, you know, I have you here, and both of you are very much involved with that. So I want to talk about, you know, ingredients to making fermented drinks. So both of you, the key ingredient is tea, right? Yes. We start with tea, and it's not that simple. But so, Sancho, let me talk to you first. You curate your teas. You work with a woman in England. You know, tell me how you approach the teas. Um, we work with Henrietta Lovell, um, rare tea lady, a rare, uh, rare tea company. Uh, she's been working 20... That's the name of the company, yeah, right? Rare yeah, Tea Company? Yeah, right. she's been working 20 years um, in order to claim the work of farmers and the skill of uh, tea masters. Um, she wanted somehow to, uh, to claim uh, the places, the people, and somehow break the monopoly or the, I don't know how you would say, of the commodity cut gun, no? at the end tea, in order to elevate the category um, she's been doing that for 20 years and she's been traveling the world, finding farms, finding farmers that work uh, organically and that uh, have the craft of transforming the leaf, uh, which is crucial because uh, you need to do a good farming, but you need to transform the, the leaf well. The treatment of the leaf is crucial. Um, we work with her because I think it's very important. To Wait, when you say the treatment of the leaf, so the farming practices, you know, she's very keen to, um, she's keen to, but the next process is processing the tea, you know, that it's done in the right ways. That's what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Before you even ferment, like when you get the product. Exactly. Okay. I mean, you pick up the leaves and uh, from the treatment you give, it can be a white, green, or the different versions of the tea. Right. Now, most people don't know that all tea, if you're having something that is tea, it is all Camellia sinensis or Camellia somica. Which is a bush? Or yeah, a it's a bushy, shrubby tree. kind of tree. Right. And so every type of tea, whether it's white, yellow, green, red, which is what we call black tea, because for some reason in the West we call the tea the color of the leaf instead of the color of the liquid that comes from it. Um, Wulong. Yeah. So when, when you talk about different teas like white and poor and is that the processing of the leaves that makes it different but it's the same source exactly okay. it's only it's all camellia sinensis or camellia somica okay 
Um, is there a difference between the two? Um, Asamica just happens to be um, biodiverse enough to where it gets an, uh, an assignation in terms of uh, species. And clearly from like Assam, Assam tea is where Asamica was created or identified. It has moved. There's like Taiwanese Assams, which are crazy. Um, but yeah, so it's all those. It's all Camellia. And you source your teas? How? Um, we handle, because, because I have a background in tea and um, our um, partners um, in the business um, come from a bit of a tea background. Luckily, we can control a lot of our sourcing. The tea world is wide. It's like there's a lot of people who are buyers and resellers. There are people you can work directly with farms. There are, you're working with like farms. Sometimes you're working with a farm. That is actually a, a, like a village co-op. Especially like Puar production. I know you're interested in Puar. Right. Sometimes like groups will collect tea to be processed in Puar and individual Puar producers will come assess the lots and they'll control the method of the fermentation of the tea on the grounds and then like leave. So there's a lot of different types of tea production and tea buying. So the common thread here is both of you have very trusted sources. So exactly. the source product, mm -hmm. um, which is probably why you're doing it. Um, so the things that go into making these fermented teas, it's not a lot of ingredients, right? Um, so let's talk about them. There's a thing called, I guess you refer to it as SCOBY, S-C-O-B-Y. Does anybody out there know what that is? Okay. I did. All right. So Graham, SCOBY is an integral part of making these fermented teas. SCOBY stands for what and what does it do? It is a symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast. I don't know why the O gets in there. I guess to make it a little bit. That's a good name for a band. Exactly. Go ahead. Yeah. It feels like a band sometimes. Yeah. Um, the first thing is that it's pretty gross. Um, but it is basically the um, living um, chemistry of um, literally symbiotic bacteria and yeasts that are mutually cooperative and most importantly, mutually cooperative with the human biome. You know, people like to think of it as a binary between bacteria and yeast, but it's really a trinary between our gut bacteria and yeasts and those because they survive through us populating them. But how is it made? Like, it's it's a when you look at um, fermented teas, you see this physical presence exactly. in the tea, and that's the scoby. You put the scoby in. How is it made? Where does it come from? How is it produced? The interesting thing about where a scoby is made is these days there are people who are making commercial um, starters. You can use almost any kind of kombucha as a starter to make more kombucha as long as it's not been pasteurized. Um, but the funny thing is that like it's all kind of ancestral. There is a lineage to almost every scoby that exists. Because it was an act probably originally of some kind of, uh, you know, big bang spontaneous fermentation right. that happened that some types of yeast and bacteria happened to be able to cooperate in a way that enticed people into having it, whether in some kind of proto beer fermentation. I don't know. It's hard to really trace. I think the really? earliest we have is early China. It's, it's kind of mystical or whatever. Absolutely. I feel like you are kind of like engaging in history whenever you're working in this style of fermentation. So I have a question. So SCOBY is necessary in fermenting the beverage. It sounds like a starter, but is there SCOBY and a starter to make fermented or are they both the same? So let me go back to the SCOBY because, I mean, things of legend, at the end there's a lineage, it comes from somewhere. Ours, um, Ramon, like, uh, bought, um, bought the SCOBY and received it in a postal, in a postal envelope from a crazy guy in Germany, like uh, in 210 or something. So wait, he started this with mail order scoby mail from a German exactly. guy? Mail order. It's, okay. a, it's a very strange marketplace. Okay. I can, I can confirm this. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of like, kind of like shady. I mean, it's mail order. That seems like something out of like three centuries ago. And uh, so he received that. And um, probably like, I don't know how many million liters of uh, kombucha have been made in Spain, uh, starting from that uh, lineage of that German guy sending it by by mail do you have like our first scoby story like here? yes actually i think that most people in this business actually have a first scoby story for some reason um i got mine from um a um 
wonderful guy in um, Tennessee, I think. I think that we might have actually had two starters at one point. I can't exactly confirm which was because we had lots of trial runs and we used different types of SCOBY at different times for different products because our products self uh, self start. So eventually different lines are from everything. I believe if it was the first SCOBY that we experienced, I can't confirm that it's the one that made it to the final stage or whatever of what we do. But from uh, Short Mountain, Tennessee, which is uh, okay. pretty close to where I live. And um, I think it's currently where like Sander Katz resides. I think I might have a connection to Sander Katz. All right. So for the people who walked in, welcome. Um, we're talking about creating complexity without alcohol. We're talking about fermented beverages, beverages that are fermented from tea. We've gotten into the source product. And we're starting to talk about you know how you make it. Everyone has... What do we have in front of everyone? Do we have both of yours? or I think, yeah, we're going producer to producer okay. right now. So. so we have, just go over it again quickly. Sure. So the more um, lighter complexion bottle that you'll be, or glass that you'll have, is um, Winchin Baozhong. That's the name of the tea that the ferment is created from. Winchin Baozhong is a lightly oxidized uh, Taiwanese oolong. And then the other one is Chidan. That'll be the more roasted and darker one. That is a, um, a more oxidized and deeply roasted wulong from uh, Wuyishan in eastern China. All right, so you're up to speed. Back to my question. SCOBY, an essential part to making fermented tea drinks. Is there SCOBY and a starter, or SCOBY is the starter? SCOBY is the starter. Yeah. Sometimes people will associate the cellulose mat that will develop on the ferment to protect it from its kind of immediate environment as the SCOBY, because that's the most visible thing. But the SCOBY is truly the colony of bacteria and yeasts that are active inside of the fermentation. That right, take so it from nothing to ferment it. Let's talk about fermentation. In order to create fermentation for these beverages, you have to add a sweetening agent, sugar yep. or honey. So that's one of the other ingredients. Yeah, and, and what you are saying is important because it's true that every single um, variety of tea or what you're using, uh, there's a very distinct DNA of the SCOBY that it works super differently, looks very different. And, um, and then it's, um, you, you reuse it to start, like the old batch, like you, you reuse it to st as a starter for the new batch, okay? So it's a perpetual. Like sourdough bread. So it, it, and just or like a perpetual, pushing. like a perpetual right. in champagne or like a, uh, so that's how it happens. But then of course it's um, tea infused, uh, the sweetener, we use the cane sugar, organic cane sugar, um, the scoby. And in our case, water, mineral water from uh, Itharraith Mountain, from Alzola, from the Basque Country, a big, um, uh, a big limestone rock um, that definitely we think is part of the character. We tried many like spring waters from the Basque Country, and the one we uh, stick with uh, was this one from from Alzola. It's simple, but at the same time, it's well. I'm not going to use uh, bad words in here in public. Or Please in the radio. do. Uh, but then it's like really complicated at the same time. So uh, um, as a winemaker, this thing about law intervention is kind of like really, you know, also like you can debate about that. But this is much more complicated than to uh, ferment wine. Right, I would say, you know, it's like and yeah. you, need, you need to have a craft a precision in the making because these are wild beasts that can go really crazy. I, I want to talk about the, uh, you know, the practice of low intervention and, you know, how you process everything. But Graham, in the fermentation process, you use a kombucha process and then you use a process where you use, well, you, wait, the kombucha process is sugar. The other process is with honey. Yes. Am that's I a, correct? Exactly. So, so and, and are we seeing the two different or are these? These are both kombucha. Kombucha. I brought in okay. terms of kombucha. So just explain the difference. Sure. In terms of uh, the offerings that we brought today, I wanted to bring, um, of the four products that we have, I brought the two that were both made from what we would call an oolong. Oolong is like a style of tea that's basically everything between a green or yellow tea and a, um, a red or black tea. And so that means that it's been um, oxidized past a green point and it's been roasted or heat treated in, a, in certain way that's not just a fixative. 
And so these are both kombucha style, which means that sugar drives the fermentation. I wanted to bring these on to the panel today because I just want to show how much breadth there can be, even in how two fermentation, how a similar fermentation process can deal with two different substrates, even if they are both tea. The oxidation level, the um, level of how it's been heat treated to fix it, encourages and feeds certain types of yeast and bacteria because they both partake of the kind of raw substrate of the tea. And so after a few generations, you have something that can taste as different from the same thing, tea, and even from the same tea style. Um, for this fermentation acts as a kind of organic technology to unpack and disclose the, um, the kind of flavor components, the polyphenols, uh, the flavonoids, it even pr processes the, the fermentation will actually metabolize caffeine um, in order to create certain types of operations inside of the um, inside of the, the culture that's working on the tea. So Sancho said he had the luxury of Basque streams and incredible water. Um, it's no secret you're making stuff in Brooklyn. New York tap, baby. Most of this New stuff is water, so you're using New York tap. Do you New have to treat it in any way? Thing. We do. We do. Um, we do not do a reverse osmosis filtration because that's uh, actually too aggressive. There's some trace minerals that actually need to exist for the tea to be healthiest, but luckily New York tap water is pretty good. No, we have good enough pipes. That's really the main problem in New listen, York. Listen, probably fermented teas, bagels, pizza crust. I mean, we'll put that up against anyone, exactly. right? <laughs> Come on, let's go. Yeah. Your, it's your terroir. At the end, it's your terroir, and the identity of the water is key. Like yeah. the saggy people, you know? So it's yeah. New York. Let me tell you, I don't know if we could do it with like uh, Tallahassee water, but New York water. No, no, no. There's it's definitely, from, yeah. nobody has ever complained about New York water. And they've actually, like I said, credited pizza crust and New York yeah. bagels to that as a and I And I would say too, just to add to the, the water, um, we actually, mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting because I feel like there are two different um, relationships to tea that we've engaged in. Um, in that, like, at one point in time, we were trying to figure out if we could mineralize our water or something. Ah. And also, in a lot of um, in tea processing or like in higher end um, tea tastings, you'll actually want to use a kind of like a cast iron kettle that has at least a little tiny bit of like rust and oxidation right. in it because it'll yield and emphasize certain characteristics of the tea. That's um, interesting. So, I just wanted to say that that's like, there's like a lot of like, tea ancestry in the water selection that you're using. Right. That I think makes that is one of the reasons why your product that, definitely sings. That's why I brought it up. Two very different sources of water. Yeah. All right. So you had two teas in front of you. I think I'm going to ask you to drink up because I want to move along and taste um, the next two wines, which would be from Sancho. But we will, if we need to go back, we can. If you need to taste and you want to do a side by side. Um, so Sancho, what are we going to be pouring? So we're gonna, we're gonna go with Idu. Idu is three in Basque and Lao, which is four. Idu is, um, Idu is a Malawi green and white peony from Satemwa State in, in Malawi. It's the only blend that we, that we use. Uh, this bottle, it was bottled Tomorrow is going to be its second birthday. It was bottled 29th of March of 2020. So uh, it's two years of aging in bottle. The second one that you're going to be poured, okay? That first one that you're being poured is Lao. Lao is a milky oolong from Taiwan. And I think what is great is that your, your oolong comes from the hills. Ours come from low-lying uh, fields and uh, that are more um, uh, known for pineapples. But again, this is a co-op also that um, that work organically. Um, but it's totally different terroir. So that, that's so great that we can start, start talking about the terroir of like milky oolong in Taiwan being so different. So I think that's the- Milky oolong is crazy. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the, the magic about this, like putting in front the origin of the tea to understand the product. And to add just one other layer. Um, so you're going to be tasting stuff that you said is about like two years. It'll be its second birthday. Our uh, stuff was probably bottled um, like last week. So that's like kind of, we come from two different kinds of directions in terms of um, how we treat aging inside of our process. So let's talk about aging for a second. Um, does that mean 
you could lay either one of these down for six months, a year, two years, or are you saying yours are best when they're drank in a window? I mean, what's what's the ageability of, let's start with your teas, and then Sancho, tell me about you. Well, I would say Sancho's definitely the person to ask about that because that's his, his practice. But our, in terms of like survivability, um, you know, if you have these in refrigeration, they can probably last about as long as your fridge will, just because they are inherently preserved foods that okay. are unpasteurized. But I would say... Does it do anything to the beverage? Things, things can develop. It's, it's interesting. We've done some, um, like, micro tests on aging some stuff nowhere near as long as Sancho has. Um, and because we are decidedly non-alcoholic, our ability to um, kind of cellar is very much throttled because we can't exceed 0.5% alcohol. Um, which is a, a strange designation the United States has. For some reason, most other countries are 1 to 1.5, 0.5% ABV. The difference between those two is very thin in terms of experience. But we, haven't, we, we have left bottles around and come back to them. In complexity, some things are more muted. Some things have become more complex. Um, but we haven't, uh, not anywhere close to what uh, Sancho has been working on. So maybe it's the fact that uh, ours uh, go from 1.5 to 2.5 alcohol that make it uh, um, uh, fit for aging. That one percent is a difference. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, okay. I mean, we are, we are. I mean, we are kind of like going through a known terrain. I mean, yeah. both these guys and us. And I mean, might seem like the same as the. German guy with a scoby. Uh, I don't, don't want to seem like really like uh, storytelling driven and like uh, crazy legends, but uh, there was like a, also like a whoa moment when uh, some bottles uh, brewed by Ramon were kind of forgotten. It's like uh, no cold or anything. And suddenly uh, two years later, they were amazing. So this kind of like Don Perignon uh, moment, you know, but I mean, don't want to sound too legendary because uh, then there's a legend of the of the back garage uh, operation and all that. But yeah, uh, ours um, through um, the very, through the, the intuition that Danny and Ramon and the experience of like fermenting a lot in the restaurant and of these bottles that uh, were left uh, yeah, uh, uh, to age uh, uh, with no aim for that, but that suddenly were complex, really ingrained bubbles, and uh, they became something else. Uh, from the beginning, they knew that uh, um, we were gonna try to uh, work with um, some world-class teas such as this one and age them, okay? Um, you can see a very different character of, uh, of Idu and, and Lau. And both are, one is two years old, and Lau is um, June 2020. And well, somehow we went against the rules of uh, fermentation of a very well-known uh, book of fermentations of a very well-known very well restaurant uh, that would say that kombucha cannot be aged. And we definitely demonstrate with this that kombucha can be aged. And again, through a very careful selection of like uh, amazing tea, and a very careful um, infusion and process of fermentation. We definitely think that it can age. In the labels, um, we were obliged to say that it can be aged for three years because um, we couldn't show something of more than two years. So Low said, okay, no, this cannot age more than three years. We believe that uh, it might be improving with time. So maybe we can keep a few bottles for our next talk in a couple of years or something to see if it was bullshit for or sure. that it was real. For sure. Um, you know, I'm drinking this stuff and I'm like, I got to drive later. And then I just realized, who gives a shit? I mean, this is all low alcohol, so let's go. Um, you drink it while you drive. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, That's where officer. I think we discussed some of the similarities. I mean, there are definitely similarities to tea and to grapes, you know, how you grow them. And both are fermented beverages. Um, but let's talk about some more of the similarities. I think one of the things in the winemaking world is winemakers have estate-grown grapes in their backyards or they contract from a friend or they control it. Um, you know, you're at the mercy of a good source and you luckily have a good source. Um, what other similarities do you see with fermented teas and making grapes? 
Well, I, I mean, making wine with fermented grapes. I guess it was no, I get the same with you guys. But when we showed bottles to um, the role crew to Isabel, at the end we were talking about farming, and um, the tea that we work with, uh, both our companies are uh, um, are organically farm, uh, small scale uh, farms that take care of the land. Uh, it's basically um, it's a cultural landscape. Uh, built by uh, the work of people that have been uh, cultivating these beautiful rolling hills, um, full of life, uh, that's totally aligned with what happens with the uh, um, growers of uh, grapes in, in Rome. Um, and definitely like a pride and a love for your, for your, for your land to uh, craft something beautiful. That goes then, uh, of course, the work of the many grape producers, their work finishes when uh, the grapes go to the winery. As we were talking before, the work of the, the tea crafts, craft people um, still goes from when the picking the leaves to the processing of the leaves for the different styles. So even there's like this craft, this knowledge uh, uh, that is ancestral, as you were saying, and that it's transmitted from generations to, uh, to be really proud of what they do and, uh, uh, um, and do a beautiful product. So I have a problem using the term natural wine, but this is like natural wine tea. I mean, now people are starting to call natural wine low intervention, but your whole profile and process is based on all of that. You know, the source and, you know, how you make everything. Um, and you made a good point. I mean, we're paying way more attention to the farming because that's critical to the product and you know how you make it so obviously low intervention in the making of the product right I mean nothing you add what you have to which is the scoby the sugar and you're very selective on all of that yeah it's interesting because it's like these products definitely would not exist without intervention in certain ways. Right. I mean, so it's fermentation, it, 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 it's, it's very funny, but I mean, you can <laughs> screw up intervention. You know? It's true. I think that there's, I think that intervention and its positive or negative effect has kind of just become synonymous with best practices in certain ways. That's so like for the, actually for the, the uh, more roasted tea that we tried earlier, um, we actually have um, struggled because the, Trees that are that this that tea comes from are between two and five hundred years old, which actually cannot exist without truly indigenous land management that does not add up to the USDA current coterie for what organic even means. And so we have various. But, but what does that mean? So they have to use some treatments. Or? There are some treatments that are actually kind of best practices for their land use that just have not been evolved into the U into certain international designations of um, organic. But if I asked you about those practices, you don't have control over them. Yeah. You could decide not to deal with somebody like, but do you agree with them? I mean, are they Absolutely. reasonable to you? Yeah. It's, there's, it's, we're it, not talking about over treatment. Or anything. Exactly. Okay. It's not, it's not insecticides. It's not, it's like literal, the tree, for its like semi immortal state has required certain types of like intervention chemically to be able to continue to exist as right. opposed to what we normally think of with agricultural intervention, which is, you know, biohazardous things being applied to it for crop stability, say. Right. <laughs> you brought up a good point about, you know, there's so much intervention in these products. And even with wine, it's like, oh, this is a low intervention wine or this is a natural wine. I mean, there's a lot of things you don't do. But if you don't do a lot of things, yeah. you know, it's not happening. So go ahead. That's a point I think is crucial also for this. So there's this uh, saying that by a well-known um, American importer, wine importer, that would say uh, place, place versus process. Right. I'm sure you know who this, who said this. Yes. But what I say is uh, place and process, okay? Because again, these are really wild beasts. Uh, these are uh, these these things that are in our scobies. Um, so I definitely think there's a very precise treatment of the DNA, the genetics, how we take care of them, because again, this this um, this drink can go very fast, turn acetic. It's true. So there's a big, I mean. 
And the low intervention thing, you know, is like winemakers uh, have a big control on the grapes that they get in the in their in their wineries. And you know, I, there's many that work a lot by intuition, but um, you have to have like a huge uh, many uh, uh, harvest of experience and a very deep understanding to say you do low intervention, but you are intervening. And in our case, it's place and process. So um, Danny and Ramon have been fermenting for years. And as chefs also, uh, as chefs of this level, they're, they're always very close to science. Um, um, so the intuition and the empirical um, uh, work for of years is really being contrasted by labs. One of our partners is a, is a wine lab, and we definitely know the uh, uh, the DNA of each one of our scobies. So there's a lot of, it might seem simple. I mean, there's no technology in what we do. We use temperature control, that's for sure. That sometimes might seem like, oh no, temperature control in a natural wine world might sound like an evil, but I mean, we need to do it because we live in a place in the Basque country where it can be 40 degrees in right. July and it can be three degrees in, uh, in January. So we definitely want to be even our bottles are like um, alive, and um, but they have like a very definite style, and we want them to be uh, stable and uh, and and tr trustworthy. <laughs> so that's the only thing we do: we right. control temperature and having a very big knowledge of the DNA of our beasts. One thing I found out in this business is that sommeliers want to become winemakers. And chefs want to ferment everything. <laughs> if you go into a restaurant, their their pride is like, "Hey, come back here! Look at all these jars! You know, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on." And there are some very famous restaurants that are doing a great job with that. All right, so we poured out two of the three of your wines. Did we discuss both of them? I think I explained. Um, well, yeah, no, we talk about the, yes, we um, did. We talk about so. It. I think we're, we're we have less than fifty minutes left. I think we should pour out the last wine. So everybody, clear your uh, glasses. Well, I mean, as you guys, you, you brought like, we brought like a third one, but I don't know if we should pour it or not. We can also do a, we can do a side by side too. Yeah, let's do that. So no, let's let's end. let's pour the third wine. And Graham, you still have stuff here. So Pick one wine to do a side by side. So we're talking about. Same product, different styles, different countries, process, different philosophy. So that would be a fun exercise. So, um, Sancho, talk about the uh, the last. Um, so that's beverage. B. That's B means uh, two in Basque. Uh, so that's um, that's it's lemongrass. It's the pure expression of lemongrass from um, Amba State in Sri Lanka. It's a cooperative run by women that work the stalk, the stalks, the stalks of the lemongrass. So you will see it's like aromatic bomb uh, of pure lemongrass expression. All right. So lemongrass is the. I, I think it's, yeah, it's nearly also two years, two years of aging. We brought out like the oldest bottle that you guys that we had here in our importers in the state. All right. So let's get all that poured out and then. Um, We'll get your take on some side-by-side. -side. I have a few questions. Most of these, I think everything we tasted today is sparkling, right? Yeah. Both of yours were sparkling yep. and yeah, all yeah. yours. Do you make still uh, wine? No. You don't. No, because basically at the end, is the second fermentation in bottle happens in, in do bottle. You, exactly. do, don't you make one still? Yes, if you want to visit the Unified Ferments down in 93. <laughs> we, have a, um, we do do a still um, expression of what we do. We can control um, effervescence in a way that this ferment, especially if left unpasteurized, because um, the yeast will continue to be active. In a cellaring process, like Sancho is doing, um, it will continue to, it, I'm in being monitored and however it's disgorged or um, whatever process, um, it will continue to become um, uh, more carbonated. So we have uh, a product that, because we are also fighting a kind of association with uh, kombucha style ferments um, and, you know, kind of the like soda pop grocery store version of the ferment that's really popular right now and has been. Um, we wanted to present something that was still that we can achieve that just because we um, we can refrigerate it, which means that it's the it's the all the yeasts and bacteria get a little too sleepy to do a whole lot of work. 
So, so let me just ask you this. The best representation of wines from the Champagne are sparkling, and the majority of what you get out of Champagne is sparkling. They make some very exciting still wines that are a fraction of everything. Is it the same with these beverages? They're best represented as a sparkling, and the majority of the artisanal stuff is sparkling? I wouldn't agree, actually. You wouldn't? I wouldn't say so. Okay. I think that we probably have two different... Because we don't allow fermentation to carbonate our beverages. We don't do bottle conditioning. We add carbonation to our right. beverages. We think of it as, um, you know, a, a thing on the palate to work with. We're like, how much do we want? And we found that we can be more dynamic if we actually didn't allow the fermentation that Sancho was encouraging in his products. Um, so I think that traditionally most of the stuff that's available on the market is actually very force carbonated. Um, so I would actually say that it, uh, it's, it's a hard thing to wrap around because he's allowing more fermentation. When that's you say force carbonated, does that indicate that that's not the better made stuff? You know, that's I or not necessarily. So. Okay. Again, I mean, we, right. So that's process how you yeah. make it. Yeah. Got it. But I think the, uh, Sancho's letting more fermentation happen over more of an extended period of right. time, which you that you can taste between the two of them yields like a, you know, uh, a different presence and it's which side of the fermentation style. I think we probably prioritize the pre anaerobic style. So we are mostly operating on open top fermentation that is being exposed to air that makes the bacteria come a little bit more alive. And you? Uh, coming to your uh, question, uh, we still don't do Coteau Champenois. No yeah, Coteau Champenois no, still. That's what it is. We don't know how to do that. <laughs> you know, so, is the style that we're working with. And, uh, yeah. So I asked you earlier, people, you know, think of kombucha as a health aid. Um, I don't think that's the reason you should be attracted to these or drink them or buy them. You should go out and eat sauerkraut instead. But no, are, there, are there any health benefits? I mean, is it naturally, you know, just the nature of what it is and yep. the way it's made? It is neither a panacea of health, nor is it perilous in any way. It is a naturally, most of the time, naturally fermented beverage. Most store-back kombucha that you'll get has um, some degree of some microbiology control and pasteurization that might be blended out. Probiotics might be added in retroactively, and they're perfectly fine for you. What you're tasting with ours is an unpasteurized um, ferment that has been, you know, I think you might be able to call it like semi-wild, which is an annoying designation to have to try to throw around. But it's a style of kombucha or a style of fermentation that is not guided by any kind of added chemistry or added probiotics. It's something that will naturally develop on its own, and that makes it more biologically competitive. If that interacts with your especially gut biome productively, then you might see some added health benefits from that. It's much more of a shade of gray. Because not everybody, not this type of thing does not dovetail with everybody's system. Neither does wine, neither does beer, neither does, you know. Same with you. I mean, it's tea. I don't know. It's not about. Um, I mean, I, we, we, we wouldn't know. Um, right. uh, That's a fair answer. At the, <laughs> at, at, at the end, we don't recommend it um, to a pregnant, uh, for pregnancy. We wouldn't recommend it because some people say, I know it's low alcohol, so I can, while I'm pregnant. We don't, I mean, it's. Personally, we, we don't know, and also we don't recommend it to give to kids because it has 2.5 alcohol. So people know it is okay. like so tasty, this lemongrass, but this one has 1.5 alcohol. We highly recommend kids. We want more kids. <laughs> I, I look at it as I want as many kids drinking this as, as possible. I look at it as weaning them up. Exactly. Right? You know? Your next, your child's birthday party. That's how you be really classy is to buy a, you know. All right. So Our new consumer, no? We're getting uh, either a new consumer. A few more things before we wrap up because we're getting near the end. Um, I think everyone has tried these. I think everyone is more than pleasantly surprised. I think you see how well these are made. So you go out and you buy these fermented beverages. Let's talk about what to serve them with. I mean, food pairings. Is it a pre-dinner thing? Is it a post-dinner thing? Is it a cheese thing? You know, what foods? And I know it'd be like saying pairing one thing to five different wines, but generally as a category, um, let's talk about food pairing. And I'm coming to you first because you're the guy that came from a room full of chefs. 
Well, at the end, uh, Danny and Ramon were uh, fermenting, were doing fermenting, uh, fermented drinks to go with food. So it was coming from the mind of chefs. So definitely was thought to, uh, uh, to use, uh, to enjoy with food. Uh, in the case of what you've tried, for example, be uh, lemongrass. For example, we, we think it's uh, it can be by uh, um, um, uh, good with like impossible pairings. So good with spicy food. Asparagus, artichokes. Asparagus, artichokes could go. And in the case of Lao, for example, the the milky oolong, we definitely think by the character of lactic character and oatmeal, oatmeal thing, it goes great with cheese, for example. And uh, Iru for in, in London, in this really cool restaurant, they were pairing it with a quail with clementines. It's kind of like wider ah. in the mouth. And uh, But then again, it's like, I definitely, there, there's certain kind of food that I enjoy more with champagnes or white wines or uh, uh, delicate plant-based uh, food that goes great uh, with this kind of delicate uh, 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 drink. And we definitely do it. I mean, I enjoy it with food. Always mix it up with different wines and different drinks. That's my approach to it. What about you? You got to eat food. Give me food. Uh, I've never had food, as I said earlier. Right. Panel, but, um, uh, I would say we have a highly designated place in our thinking for like aperitifs, digestives, and wine as food accompaniments, which I'm so happy that we do that, I guess. But I would say that these types of beverages actually do metabolically really prepare your body for food. It prepares us with for so fermented a good, things a good naturally. Pre. Always a good pre. Exactly. It's a good pre and a good post. And right. it's good in the middle too. Because it's actually well, your just body about covers everything. I don't think there's another better way. The your body actually has to metabolize alcohol in a way that it is a physical load, even if it's fine and you're perfectly able to handle that. These kinds of beverages, because they're a little bit more acidic and because they have a live, um, you know, a live culture that is generally very beneficial to gut biome especially, it really prepares you to eat Good and prepares you to eat. And it prepares you to also consume alcohol in certain contexts because there's lots of things that break down alcohol inside of kombucha. And so I have different pairings for the different things. I would say for the for the, the Winch and Baljong, um, amazing with like crustacean, freshwater fish, um, anything kind of brothy, anything with salinity. There's a perfect mignonette that I'm waiting for someone to make. Um, for shellfish? Yeah, yeah exactly. that'd be nice. Um, what about best temperature to serve? I would guess from what I'm tasting, you don't want it too cold because you'll lose some of the flavors. I think maybe too warm it may not be as enjoyable i mean what do you serve it at what's the best is it similar to wine yeah. a little cooler 9 11 degrees uh, celsius fahrenheit i always forget agree sure yeah wait fahrenheit. a second <laughs> see i drink champagne warm and white wine warm because i think it opens up but I, I mean for the average person i would say for our products i would say probably chilled red area okay and let it warm up come back to the bottle so start in the mid high 50s it's like nice you gotta think of it down. as if um you know it's um if like wine is like a great tortoise it lives like 200 years or something like that these guys are more like terriers or something right they have a briefer lifespan but you get to see more of it over the course of a bottle because the things that are in there are alive and unpasteurized in ways that they can move a little faster. It won't go to vinegar unless you leave it out for a day or two, but you can really come back and taste different nuances in the same bottle. And I'm sure that's true. The same right. is true for you. Yeah. What about glassware? Open. Stemware only. Stemware. That used to be our unofficial. No uh, champagne <laughs> flutes, open top. <laughs> Motto, except it then felt a little bit um, uh decadent of us perhaps. all right so <laughs> lastly i would guess that if you went into some cool bars where mixology is a thing they're using this as a base for low no alcohol drinks right and doing some pretty creative stuff are you seeing people mix this with alcohol too or does that defeat the you know as a cool base yeah Straight to jail? No, I'm just kidding. To, no, no, no. You can't misrepresent it. I'm always but. very excited about it. I think that I think that those that people who are in cocktails and mixology have such a different can opener for amazing gastronomic ideas that it's always a pleasure to do business with them because they'll 
contextualize in ways that like even, you know, wine ideation and stuff like that can't really situate it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, as a non-alcoholic beverage, it's terrific and certainly as a base. I guess if you went to like a Noma, they'd throw a boysenberry or seaweed in, you know, to make a difference. <laughs> we'll have to find out. All right, we got to wrap up. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming. Hope you enjoyed um, the beverages, the teas. Um, thank you guys for being so generous and sharing them and pulling out, as we say in French, the good shit. Um, thank you for that. Um, so I want to thank Sancho Rodriguez and Graham Pirtle for joining us on the Speaker's Corner at Raw Wine. Have fun the rest of the day. Get back out there. Try some new wines. I'm Sam Van Ruby from The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.